Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Preserve and protect your health by listening live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today, which is September 30th, 2015. Today we have with us Michael Gerian, and he is going to talk to us about his latest book, Lessons of Lifelong Intimacy. He is the New York Times bestselling author of 28 books, and they've been published in 22 different languages. He also provides counseling services at the Mary Cliff Center, which is located in Spokane, Washington. And he's the co-founder of the Gerian Institute, where they pretty much conduct research internationally. Uh, They launch pilot programs, and they train professionals. So let me bring Michael onto our show now. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm looking forward to you teaching our listeners today all about the lessons of lifelong intimacy, specifically the secrets involved in maintaining really healthy, happy, loving, long-term relationships. I think it's something that we can all benefit from. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. I'd like to start the show out by asking you, how did you get on the path that you're on today? Well, it started uh, it, it's, it started about 30 years ago. I was in um, college and then grad school about 30 years ago, and the the dialogue at that time, as it as it needed to be, it was right that it be, mm-hmm. was very much about gender roles, you know, and and which was which was really great. Um, I was also very curious about gender, though. I was I, I had lived a lot of my life overseas as a kid. My parents were academics in the oh. Foreign Service. So, you know, so everywhere we moved, I just sort of sensed that that boys, you know, men kind of thought like I did, and we we felt we played a little differently than girls. You know, it was just this felt sense. And then when I was in college and mm-hmm. grad school, I was I really really wanted to explore the science of that because I I had that gut instinct, and this was just when we were able to have PET scans, spec scans, MRIs, all this stuff about male and female we had access to starting around then. Uh, in the 80s, and so I devoted that part of my life, <clears throat> my my writing life, professional life, has been very much around studying the science and applying it, uh, nature, nurture, and culture, applying it in people's lives. So that, of course, has to do with girls, boys in school, helping teachers, you know, across the board, and then um, and then helping couples. Hmm. So, what was your first job? Oh wow, my first job. Well, I was 14, and I cleaned the toilets at the Continental Trailways uh, bus station. That was my first job. But then for about 10 years, I was in restaurants paying for college and grad school. Uh, So a lot Uh of time in restaurants. Uh, My first, you know, I don't know if they call that a real job. So I did start out. I did teach at uh, a couple universities um, Uh, uh, way back when. That's what I was after. (laughs) Then I went into it. Yes, right. And then about after 12 years in academia, I, the Green Institute was formed, and I uh, so now I'm I'm out. Uh, you know, I, I speak and I'm out on the sure. road, um, and then I have a private practice. Well, let's get into your book, Lessons of Lifelong Intimacy. What brought you to write this specific book? Well, this book. Uh, so uh, this is my fifth book in in the relationships marriage area, and um, mm-hmm. m- my previous books have covered some some I think really good territory. But as I 
you know, as I have grown older, I'm now 57, and my kids are now grown, and uh, Gail, my wife, and I are at 30 years of, of marriage. And over the last, I'd say, especially 10 years in my practice, I was finding that um, there were, you know, that there's a lot of wisdom that people who have been married a while want to pass mm-hmm. down to younger people, and not in a sort of patronizing way, but just in a in a human way, you know, of mentoring and mm-hmm. and uh, passing on what they know. And and that that energy was in me for sure. And then um, a number of clients that I had, and then in our Green Institute team, a number of our our trainers and colleagues were at you know thirty five, forty, forty five years of marriage, and they were just sending me all sorts of stuff. I was doing surveys, and it was so so. I really there was that sort of loving energy in it. And then and then mm-hmm. uh, at the science level, I mean, I every you know week I'm reading new studies, and there's just so much new science coming out on relationships and. So I started developing a 12 stage, the 12 stages of, of, uh, of you know of lifelong intimacy, and I started doing that from a science point of view. And so this book really goes into that. And there's a lot of this sort of loving energy from these people who are talking about what has worked for them, um, as if, if being married a long time. But then there's also this science, and and you know also there's there's work in here about a loving divorce too, because no no. You know the the model isn't anymore that everyone's going to stay married. That's that's not going to happen. So, lifelong intimacy actually also includes divorce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you married all those those um, subject matters very well. Well, thank you. Why do you think that marriage um, suffer marriages suffer when couples become and remain too close? It's kind of a of a curious thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's sort of the basic the baseline of this book is that without people realizing it um most of divorce, not all, but most of divorce or of those bad years that occur and then we divorce, most of that actually has more subtle cause than we may realize. And I say most because some, you know, in some relationships and it looks the data makes it look like it might be 10 somewhere between 10 and 15% there's there's um you know there's abuse there's domestic violence there's um severe addiction mm-hmm. mental illness so those i'm not writing about really those mm-hmm. are in a separate category and need immediate attention you know th- those this could be sure. very dangerous so but of the other so the other 85 to to 90% where where people grow apart or they don't love each other anymore or there's just too much stress and you know there are so many so many things that are told to people like me when people walk in those marriages those relationships don't have to be married those long-term relationships um folks are are usually too distant or they're too close and it's an attachment issue and it's really an issue in these two brains trying to relate to each other and those brains are the heart and soul trying to relate to each other but they're too far away or they're too close and so this huh. book is about finding the balance and the too close one is the subtle one because everyone will say well I know when I'm too far away I mean we never have sex you know we don't talk to each other mm-hmm. we're too far away so we know what that is but the too close will usually uh, not know we we're experiencing that unless we see the signs. So some of the signs are going to be constantly criticizing our partner or, or he or she criticizing us, constantly uh, um, fighting, you know, constantly in conflict, relating through conflict. That's the way we love, through conflict. Mm-hmm. Well, those are, you know, just two of like I've got 20 of them here, these signs that you may well be too close and that may be killing your relationship. Interesting. Really Interesting. It just seems to me it's got to be really difficult to have that that balance, and it's not going to be there all the time, even if you do achieve it. Right? Yeah, it's an evolving it's an evolving story, a marriage or or a long term relationship. It's an evolving story. Mm-hmm. So we find it, and mm-hmm. then then it falls away. We get very stressed, and it falls away. The nice thing about finding it, though, is that then we can mine. You know, we can drink from that well. We remember what that felt like. So we can get back to it. Um, that first time of finding it, uh, which is really around stage four in the 12 stages, that first time finding it and sustaining it for a while, is it really does become a well we can drink from. Okay. Well, let's go through those 12 stages so our listeners can follow what we're talking about today. The first well, the first, stage okay. is... 
yeah, you know, the first the no, first ahead. stage. Oh, oh, you were going to say. I'm sorry. I thought I was following. No, you, I'm, so I'm, I'm putting in the sentence. The first stage is, and then, uh, yeah, the first <laughs> stage is romance. I mean, so we all know the first stage. Um, it's romance, mm-hmm, and it lasts mm-hmm. for a year to mm-hmm. two years usually, and it's very intense, and it's very biochemical. Um, it's mm-hmm. also, you know, heart, soul, and all these other things is how it manifests. But basically, our biochemistry is meshing. Our pheromones are meshing, and we're we become we feel like we we're becoming one and that is the stage mm-hmm. when we want to be very close and you know mm-hmm. you really it's very rare that someone will say after 3 months of falling in love okay i'm ready to be distant you know it's the chemistry doesn't do that the chemistry <laughs> right. says let's no. be really close is what it says um uh-huh. so that's the first stage right and and that that we always want to remember that the stages of intimacy mirror the stages of parent-child attachment, right? And that's one of the things in this book I'm I'm trying to help people understand and and uh, and be able to track, because that's how our human brains do intimacy with a partner. We do it by replicating the first seven seven stages of it. Replicate the parent-child bond, which is the the, the single and only bond we really know as our baseline bond for attachment. So should I talk more about so, that? So, well, what I'm curious about is if, if in, uh, that is the case and you, you haven't had um, a good experience in the child-parent bond, I can only assume you're going to take some of the negativity with you into your grown-up relationship. Yeah, it's 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 so important that yes, absolutely. If a child, let's say that a parent, you know, dies, I mean, like when a, if a parent dies, a mom dies giving birth for instance, you know, our ancestors doesn't happen as much now, but previously our ancestors would immediately try to bond the child with a second mother. Um mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, if that bond occurs, then that could substitute in for um a- and you're right. I mean, every, you know, there are a lot of family systems and they're all doing their best, and in some of those systems, the attachment between parent and child um, isn't as good as in others. And so those kids that have mm-hmm. difficult attachment, you know, a lot of them, we want them to come into therapy. We want to help them so that they can be working through that before they bond with a mate or if they've already bonded with a mate while they have because they'll unconsciously bring those difficulties into yes. their relationship. Yes. So the, it's very, it is very important to be thinking back to how did we bond with the, mm-hmm. the primary caregivers. Wow, that's big. That's really big statement. Yeah, yeah, so it is, the and there's a spectrum of it. Yep. And then what's the second um, step? Well, the second one, okay, so everyone will, I'm sure, recognize that everyone, bond, you know, we bond and it's so incredible and we're having mm-hmm. sex all the time and it's great. Yes. And then, <laughs> you know, and then somewhere, and everyone is different, right? These are just baselines. Mm-hmm. Somewhere between one and two years, generally, um, everyone will will start feeling a little bit of something. And, and let's take it all the way to, let's say, you're two years in. You've had romance incredible for two years. And but by about then, you know, it's we hit stage two, which is what what I call disillusionment. And the <laughs> word illusion is really important. <laughs> disillusionment and illusion is big because we start to see, of course, that our partner is, you know, is not the perfection that we bonded with, is not the ideal, is you know, is normal, is human, is uh, irritates us, you know, and <laughs> and the word illusion is really big because we if we're smart in stage two, we'll start thinking, I wonder what the illusions are that I projected onto this person in order to bond with this person um, mm-hmm. because later those are going to bite me in the butt. <laughs> and, and we've all done it. So I give mm-hmm. examples in the book, you know, and one example I would give is, is so um, we, you know, we project, let's say, we'll use a gender one because it's popular. Um, let's say I'm a guy and my mom always did everything for me, let's say, which my own my mom did not, but let's say she did. Well, mm-hmm. I will probably project onto this um a young woman. And by the way, it could be it could be uh, LGBT as well. Oh, sure. so it could be same sex, sure, of sure. course. Sure. I will of project, course. yeah. I will project my mom onto this person and I will expect this person to do everything for me and this person will have been doing everything for me, right? Because we're so mm-hmm. bonded. 
But now, two, three, four years later, she's not doing everything for me. And uh-huh. and it, I've got to be really smart and remember, ah, I projected an illusion onto this person. And I'll use Gail myself, just use our names to make it easier. Gail is my wife. I projected the illusion onto Gail that Gail would do everything for me and I would just sit around. But in fact, um, no, you know, that was an illusion. And that's why disillusionment is really, really an important term. And that stage can last uh, for you know quite a little while. Meanwhile, we're still in love. It's not like we're not in love anymore. We're still in love, but we're having to deal with all these irritations and all these these disillusionments. Does that make sense? And does it? It makes it makes sense. My question is, what if you're talking about adults that have had thirty, thirty-five years of marriage? They get divorced and they start a new relationship. Is it going to be identical in terms of the it, No, it won't. And that's why we were saying before about how divorce can be part of lifelong intimacy. So so that that is happening. Around 25%, uh, we think, of what we call the silver or golden divorces, um, which is folks who have been married 25 years or more and who divorce. So um, that is happening more and more. And so those folks will often go faster through these early stages because they are definitely more mature. They've been through it all already and, you know, and they'll they will tend to move faster. Uh okay. through romance and and some of them will will get married, their second marriage won't even have as much romance. I mean, they could be 60, 70. Mm-hmm. Their chemistry is very mm-hmm. different. It's not like they don't have romance, but they're not having sex every day. You know, that's it's a different mm-hmm. thing when you're 70 and you have a second marriage than when you're 25. Sure, sure. So yeah. how many steps would they would they pass through quickly? All of them that they would just oh, I mean, I could do it within would, I, within months or <laughs> Um well it, of course all of this depends on the people obviously. So of I course. could not make a I don't think there's any data giving a but I but I I this one I'll just say I have 25 years of experience. I'll say yes, I they will tend to move more quickly through and I would think that um that they will the stages will mesh more for them. So when I worked with couples, like I had the honor of marrying, I have I have this story in the book of marrying a 77 and a 76 year old. Um, yeah. Uh, because I've done some marriages, so she was she was mm-hmm. 77, he was 76. Both their spouses, they've been married 45 years. Both spouses died. They reconnected, mm-hmm. and they decided to mm-hmm. get married. And I just they gave me the honor of marrying them because I knew them really well. And so you know you look at them. I mean, they, they, they're they kind of meshing romance, disillusionment, power struggle, all these stages. They're sort of meshing them together <laughs> because they're moving so fast through those stages. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And their yeah. goal in being I, married yeah. is a different goal than the goal that they each had with their first spouses, which was to start a family. So the goals now are a little different. So the pressures uh-huh. uh, can be sometimes a little bit less. Nice. Very nice. So then what's our third goal? Well, the third stage is a power struggle. And this is the one power. that really kills American marriages. Um, uh. Uh, so power struggle, power struggle is a natural part of the formation of every relationship. It, it really is of every long-term relationship. And it's, it's really natural for two independent selves to realize, you know, in romance, they lose their independence pretty much. Then in disillusion, they start reasserting their independence. And then power struggle, it's a significant assertion of, hey, I'm, you know, I need my thing, you need your thing, I don't like the way you do it, I want mm-hmm. you to do it my way, you know, et cetera. And, and power struggle, 100 years ago, marriages had to stay together through power struggle. And the power struggle could last for years but the marriages had to stay together. There was, you know, people economically had no choice, and and religion mm-hmm. said you're going to stay together, so they stayed together. But in our era now, without our realizing it, this power struggle stage um, destroys us. And and one of the ways it destroys us is that people not only do people, do we struggle over the power of the house, the power over money, the power over children, you know, all of those things. We also mm-hmm. struggle over emotional power. And and that's the most sure. dangerous one because people will say, you know, you should emotionally be doing things the way I do it. And I I need you to emotionally respond to me the way I want you to emotionally respond to me. And that's really become something in the last 40 years or so that's derailing us because, of course, two independent people have two independent emotional structures. 
and they're going to come to compromise, but but emotional fulfillment is probably not something that will be sustained for a lifelong relationship. We're going to go through phases where we don't have mm-hmm. emotional fulfillment, and we need to expect that. But in the power struggle stage, we get really angry about that, and we want to be emotionally fulfilled. So, so we not only want control over A, B, C, D, whatever it is we want power over, we also want emotional power. And and I do spend a lot of time, as you know, in the book, and, and, and that's yes. the one. If anyone has any questions sort of about anything going on in their relationship, there are three out of eight chapters that in some way help people with practical strategies on this so they can get down into this thing. Um, because um, it, it, as, lo- as long as we say we're going to divorce because we feel emotionally unfulfilled, as long as we mm-hmm. say that, we will have you know a one out of two divorce rate because we are not, you know, at least half of us will not feel emotionally fulfilled many times in our marriage. Uh, so what I so stage three is one that we, uh, you know, if you want, we can spend time on because that's the one that gets gets us. Yes, let's do that. Okay. So, so do you? Should I just go, or do you want to ask any? Yeah. Questions? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. No, you're I you're the expert. I hate to just talk. You no, I. That's what our listeners are used to. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Well, if, okay. So, if in this power struggle stage, if anyone is has any questions about it, just just see whether um, I'll give a few clues. Like one, domains. You know, um, so domains are like food, shelter, clothing. Those are primal domains. Sex can be a domain. Parenting, um, etc. And all of these, of course, each person. What we want is a marriage in which each each person does these in their own way, right? We we don't want uh-huh. a marriage. We won't get a marriage in which both people do it exactly the same way, because that's not really natural. Every individual is an individual. They're an independent individual who happens to also now be married, or lifelong partnership. They they're still individuals. So they're still going to do food their way. They're still going to do shelter their way. They're still going to do clothing their way. And they're still going to do mowing the lawn their way, you know, nitty-gritty. They're each going to argue their own way, uh, debate their own way. And so if one person keeps trying, or both people are trying to get the other to alter the way they do these things, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I always say to folks is pick one or two and let the other 20 go, Uh, you know, uh, because it's, it's, it's not a good thing to keep critiquing the partner or for the partner to keep critiquing us about sure. all these domains, you know, who, who, how did you pay that bill? I don't like how you did that. How do you know? Um, mm. I don't like how you spend money, uh, et cetera. So, so we have to come to compromise and I give a list of these domains and ask people to go through each of them with their partner and make okay. decisions about how, them, how they'll do them. And that will help them get out of struggle over these domains. So what ends up happening, and I give the humorous example of my wife Gail and I and the dishwasher. Gail and I have, our, until we stopped doing it, argued about the loading of the dishwasher. And I loaded it one way mm-hmm. and she didn't like it and she loaded it a different way. And she would try to get me to load it her way. Um, and I would try to get her to load it my way. So we, of course, finally woke up and said this is a waste of our energy and it's hurting us, you know, I mean, cause that's just sure. one fun example, but you get 20 of those every week and those are crushing yeah. the love. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so what <laughs> we decided was that Gail, that I was going to load it. So when Gail cooked, cause she, I don't really know much about cooking. Gail's very good at it. She loves it. So she cooks and then I clean up. And then when she comes by and changes the way I loaded the dishwasher, I'm going to smile and thank her. <laughs> and that was how we solved that problem. <laughs> because, uh, so she lets me load it my way. I'm done with that. And then if I happen to, you know, come by and see her changing it, I just go, oh, thank you. I'm just, that's great. Because it's not a battle I need to fight, and it's what she wants. Um, but there are other things where she, you know, has given to me. Like there are certain times she wants to talk about certain things, and my brain can't do it. You know, I'm, chapter three is about that, sort of the differences in male and female brain. My brain can't do it. Well, early in our relationship, first 10 years or so, you know, that really would hurt her feelings that I was – she would bring something up and I would be curt. You know, I can't talk about that right now. Mm-hmm. That would really hurt her feelings. Well, as we gradually learned the brain research, we realized that, you know, this is very common, that very often one partner, and it's often the male, 
is done processing, has to recharge before the brain can process emotions again. So, so we developed a new ritual, and and you know, and that was in a sense something she gave me. Um, and she doesn't bring up deep things in that half hour, forty five minutes when I can't respond to them because my brain is shot. So these are the things that you know we have lists of these, and if people can go through this and do this, they'll generally have a, a leg up on moving out of power struggle. Question. Yeah. Does the male brain? Um, are you saying that the male brain can only process one thing at a time, and if you hit it with too many things, you have to give it a rest? Oh, Is that what you're saying? Well, there's a lot of stuff on male and female brain. Absolutely, one of the one of the key ways in which we power struggle, and this would be in heterosexual couples, one of the key ways we do it is that, is that you know, we think the male and the female brain process emotion the same way. And they absolutely do not. So, and, and I've got a thousand studies on my site. I mean, I obviously have many studies in this book. There are thousands of studies out there showing this. Uh, uh, PET scans, spec scans, etc. So, so the male brain and the female brain are set up differently and staying with emotions um, I mean, yes, certainly a guy can talk about two emotions at once, no doubt about it. But we want to remember that males, um, we have less connectivity between our word centers and our emotive centers than females do. And we have less blood flow in those centers than females do. We also (laughs) process through less white matter. Females process through more white matter. So females will tend to connect more dots. They'll tend to Mm -hmm. do multilayered emotions instantaneously. uh, Mm -hmm. And they'll also tend to verbalize those emotions more adroitly, you know, uh, with more mm-hmm. agility and more quickly. And males may need 12 hours or 24 hours uh, to process that that multi-layered emotion. And females are asking the question right now. <laughs> so, uh, so very often, males, you know, will, they'll find their husband or partner will glaze over or will, you know, almost physically <laughs> push away because it's too right. much and he can't process it. And it's not uh-huh. a flaw in his brain. It's that his brain does it differently. His brain tries mm-hmm. to find whatever is the concrete thing and deal with that. Her brain is mm-hmm. dealing with, you know, five or ten things at once. And both mm-hmm. brains have disadvantages and both have advantages. So it's very important we teach people this. And so this I, I have that chapter in here about that to help people manage Great. that better. Yeah. Hmm. Fourth stage. Okay, so let's let's say we 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 go. Oh my gosh, we've just spent three or four years in power struggle, even while love each other. But power struggle. Mm-hmm. At some point, what generally happens is, <clears throat> at least in the present day, when we have access to separation and divorce, what generally will happen, or will often happen, is one partner will say, "We can't do this anymore." And sometimes it becomes an ultimatum. You know, we mm-hmm. can't do this anymore and, um, well, we need to go into counseling. That's the one I hope for. Or we can't do this anymore, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. going to move out for a while or, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, any, any permutation of that. So if folks are getting anywhere near that where they're starting to say, I'm not sure I love him or I don't love her anymore, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, hopefully what happens is one or both partners awakens. And stage four is the awakening stage. And everyone who's ah. been through this will recognize it. They'll, they'll, it'll feel like they've woken up or a veil has been pulled off of their eyes. And clients will often use that metaphor. And they'll see it. They'll see the whole thing. They'll see, oh, my gosh, you know, we've, this is four years of arguing over these 20 things. And, and it's killing our love. And so they will awaken. And that awakening often takes them into this, um, you know, balance, what I call intimate separateness. What they awaken to is that they need the balance. So they need to look at how they do intimacy and how they do separateness. And oh, mm-hmm. the awakening stage, the secret of the awakening stage that, you know, that I'm trying to get at in this book is, is the separateness part. And this mm-hmm. is the subtle one. Because people will always be able to say, I know we're not intimate, you know, and here's why, A, B, C, D. Um, they'll always be able to say that. So, of course, when they awaken, one of the first things someone like me is trying to help them do is develop rituals to make sure to stay intimate because we got to have that intimacy. So, you know, what's mm-hmm. realistic for having sex? How many times a week or times a month is realistic? What's realistic for talking to each other every day? What rituals can you develop for dates, et cetera? So we got to get those solid to protect the intimacy. 
But in terms mm-hmm. of working on what's going wrong in this relationship, we look at the separateness. And what has generally happened is that the couple has gotten into the, the, an enmeshment abandonment pattern, it's called, enmeshment abandon, abandonment pattern. So one partner tends to be more anxious and tries to get closer a lot, and the other partner tends to try to pull away more. So enmeshment, I'm wrapping my brain around you, and then in abandonment is I'm pulling away from you, so then I feel, uh, you're pulling away from me, so I feel abandoned. And it's enmeshment abandonment. And sometimes couples find mm. it, they'll realize that one of them is the anxious partner and the other one is the angry partner. And, of course, they're both anxious and angry, but the way it's manifesting is one of them <laughs> tends to really pick constantly, very anxious. Uh, uh-huh. You have to call me. Uh-huh. You know, I'm, I, you have to text me back. If you don't text me back, I'm worried. And the other one, of course, gets into a pattern of, of um, you know, that makes me mad. I mean, stop. You're you're bugging me, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, et cetera, et cetera. Why mm-hmm. don't you believe I love you, you know? And and um, so anger, anxiety, and um, enmeshment, abandonment is what's happening underneath. And so that's where we hope they'll get into counseling and we can look at that with them and, and help them to move through that. And I find it does usually take six months or a year in this awakening stage to really delve deep into this stuff. Mm. Because it sounds to me like the anxious partner is the insecure partner. But it tends to be. It's probably genetic. I mean, very often, you know, when we get stressed, what we end up doing is falling back on our our own genetics, truthfully. Our brains fall back on what we know and what is us. And so for if someone has the alleles for anxiety, we're probably going to, they're going to become even more anxious, right? If someone has the alleles, you know, for for, uh, that anger, that what we call a hair trigger, let's say, mm-hmm. that person will become mm-hmm. even more hair trigger, you know. And and so we are still ourselves. We're just the the amplified versions of ourselves. And what we're doing is we're getting really close, and then we're pulling far away, getting close, pulling far away, push-pull intimacy. You know, I push you away, but then I pull you toward me. Then I push you away, and I pull you toward me. And that's the power struggle. That's the stuff that really gets us. That's the enmeshment and abandonment. And one partner will tend to feel more insecure attachment, and the other one will will tend to feel sometimes what I call oblivious attachment, which is that it's generally he. He won't realize that the attachment is, mm-hmm. is being destroyed, and he'll be relatively oblivious. And then, you know, 65% of divorces are, are um, instigated by women, and so the woman will... Uh, will say, I'm leaving you, and then he, he will go, what? <laughs> you know, because he mm-hmm. will have been oblivious to the attachment difficulty. Um, so, th- But that can switch genders. I'm just saying that's kind of a pattern, a statistical pattern. Sure. So sure. this is sort of, if people are in this, you know, this has to get dealt with right away, and what what this book tries to help them do is figure out how they can come to, the, to a, a healthy separateness so they can stay married for life. Because people who are always trying to be close can't stay married for life. You, you can't stay married if you're constantly trying to stay close. You have to have intimacy rituals that make sure you're close and bonded, but then you have to lead your own separate lives. And that's the marriage that lasts 30, 40, 50 years. So that's what, you what mean, we're trying to help and people what do you with. Mean, and what do you mean by um, living their own separate lives? Is that they have their own interests? Interest, friends, activities, that sort of thing? Oh, absolutely. Everyone I know, and all the people definitely who we interviewed for this book who have been married 25-plus years, you know, they, everyone, I mean 100% of them, have have said, uh, yeah, you know, I like horseback riding. Oh, these are just some examples. Sure. And she likes scuba diving. So she scuba dives and I horseback ride. You know, these are these are separate interests. Uh, it's like it, of course it's a merging Venn diagram. You do a lot together, of course you do, and that's the intimacy. But the separateness is I, you know, I go to work and maybe I don't call her and she doesn't call me. You know what? It's okay. I mean, we love each other and mm-hmm. we'll reconnect. Mm-hmm. That's separateness. That's healthy separateness. That's really healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if someone okay, and I want to say right away, I have a whole chapter on affairs, and I, I want to say that we obviously do not mean an affair. That's not what we mean by a separate life. That Correct. is very, very difficult for a marriage. But, but mm-hmm. you know, this side of that, in other words, even forming other friendships. Um, I mean, certainly Gail and I, we have couple friends, but we have a lot of separate friends. Um, and mm-hmm. that's fine. You know, that's separateness. Mm-hmm. So th- 
the, got to have that balance. We got to have the intimacy rituals, but we can't be trying to stop the partner from the separateness. Um, if we do, the partner is probably going to rebel, or the partner is going to withdraw and become so depressed that that's going to harm the relationship. So we mm. we need the balance. I think that is so important. Listeners, if you're just joining in with us, we're talking with Michael Gurian, and he's the author of his latest book called Lessons of Lifelong Intimacy. I don't know if we're going to have enough time to go through all the steps, but I suppose we can just continue until the clock stops. <laughs> okay. And our readers and our readers will have to know, I'm hopeful that they'll buy your book anyway, but um, this gives them a really good taste for for the content. What is the fifth stage of the 12 stages of lessons of lifelong intimacy? Uh-huh. Yeah, the fifth stage is um I I call it the second major crisis. And ah. um because so the first major crisis in a relationship is the illusion the disillusionment moving into power struggle. So the you know, so yes. the relationship goes through a crisis phase where where it has to uh, reorient in order to get mm-hmm. out of power struggle and the, the the disillusionment and power struggle and all that all the conflict that stuff is the first major crisis now we want to say that something else could happen there a child you know god forbid could die um there mm-hmm. could be other major stressors on the marriage that that could also be crises um however in this model i'm going to assume that since I know that every marriage will go through some form of power struggle, I'm having that as the first. So the second major crisis, so that that also can be anything like, um, you know, becoming sandwich generation, and that's about three or four years of constantly being in crisis mode as parents are, mm-hmm. are you need to give care to parents and they're dying, but you're also raising your two or three kids. That one thing right there is crisis mode that, that a lot of us are in now. Mm-hmm. Um, other mm-hmm. crises can be harm. You know, a child becomes addicted uh, or, or we realize that our spouse is a porn addict or, I mean, anything mm-hmm. really, or someone has an affair. Any of these things become that mm-hmm. crisis. And, and um, the hope is that we mine that crisis to get at the intimate separateness paradigm. Um, so, so to give some examples of some some folks that I've worked with. So, in one case, a, a their two-year-old died in a freak accident. Um, mm. You know, just very tragic freak accident with a little Horrendous. pool. Yeah, Horrendous. it was just re- really really tragic. And and you know, when they came in for counseling, you know, I fear like I think every counselor does that the death of a child will will end that relationship because there's a high statistical mm-hmm. probability of that but in this couple what happened was they they faced it together and it it really helped them to be more intimate with each other but at the same time they realized that they hadn't been setting very good boundaries with each other uh, as a couple and so they they came into the counseling because of the crisis of losing the child and what they ended up doing was using the inspiration of the child to help them to stay together and to work on balancing intimacy and separateness so they could be a marriage that lasted So because mm-hmm. they wanted mm-hmm. more children. I mean, their goal was have stay together and have more children. And so okay. in a way, this child inspired that, and they were able to develop a balance of intimacy and separateness that they had not had before. So that's an example of a crisis that turns into being helpful and affairs affairs can do that someone one of the two Mm -hmm. will have an affair a couple will come in thinking this is going to end the relationship but what they'll actually do is they'll use the affair as a catalyst to develop an intimate separateness paradigm in their relationship so that they can Mm -hmm. last Mm -hmm. and generally the incentive of those couples is that they have kids and they want to find a way to stay together at least till the kids are grown and so they're not going to let this affair destroy that. And 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 so, you know, uh, take responsibility, all of the things that, and I have a whole chapter in there on that, that we do to help people through affairs. Part of what we're also doing is we're, we're trying to help them use the affair as that crisis that leads them to the next mm-hmm. stage, stage six, which is refined intimacy. So what they're doing is refining the way that they love to balance intimacy and separateness. So does that make sense? 
It does. I guess uh, another question I have would be how do they build back the trust that was lost um, yeah. out of the result of having an affair? Well, it does take time, and I, I devote a, a one full chapter, very long chapter to it, to help people with tools. Oh, good. So some examples, um, so, some things That's to excellent. think about for folks. Yeah. One thing to think about is we now know, and the reason I call this a crisis rather than a, a relationship destroyer, is we now know that there are some genetics around monogamy, what we call monogamy, which is obviously having one partner once we mm-hmm. marry that person. There are some genetics around this and some some genetic markers. And some folks appear to have more uh, genetics for monogamy and other people less. And so oh. that's like one of the tools I give people right away. If one person has had an affair and the other has not, mm-hmm. one of the things I ask them is, okay, do you know of anyone else in your family who had affairs? And quite often they'll say, we always knew my father did, but no one talked about it. Or we always knew my mother did, or my mm-hmm. aunt or my uncle. So mm-hmm. there's some genetics around this. And that, you know, these are not an excuse for the affair. The affair is still a bad yeah. thing. But it helps couples, especially the couple who did not have the affair, it helps that mm-hmm. person to move toward retrust and toward some forgiveness because yeah, that often would. what happens with that? That definitely would give you a basis, you know, a baseline for understanding it. The yeah, genetic it does. Component. And, right, because if we don't understand that piece, often what happens is the person who did not have the affair thinks the affair is her fault or mm-hmm. his fault. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so so I'll, I'll switch the genders on this. We'll say that she had the affair and he did not. So he who did not have the affair, you know, will often blame himself. But if he understands these genetics, it's at least one piece of a puzzle so that he can move a little more quickly toward trusting again. And, of course, she has to prove her trust, no doubt. Sure, um, sure. But that's just one tool that helps a little so affairs can destroy marriages, there's no doubt, but I do want to say that um, I have had some good luck in that area, especially if people have kids, and when they come in to counseling, I disclose immediately if they have children and they come in and one of them's had an affair or they both had affairs, if the, if they have kids, I immediately disclose to them and make sure they want to still work with me, I disclose that I'm going to try to help them stay together as long as no one's a abusing or there isn't, you know, there isn't violence, um, mm-hmm. severe mental illness, mm-hmm. et cetera, as long as we're in that 85% to 90% category, then I disclose that to them because if they've got kids, you know, it's a double trauma on the kids. Um, of course The affair and then the divorce is a double trauma. So I try to, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't always work, but it, but a lot of people will try it at least. And then if the person then goes and has more affairs, that generally kills it, you know. Of I course. mean, it's sort of like, of okay, course. I'll give you a second chance, but then, you know, mm-hmm. that can be really painful. So then the, the the sixth step was the refined intimacy. What's the seventh? So that's it. Yeah. So the sixth is a period of time in which you refine intimacy. You you rework everything and you get it figured out. You know, people figure it mm-hmm. out and go, this is what we need. This is who we are. We're not We're not what they wrote about in Cosmopolitan. We're this. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is what we need. This is how we love each other. That's refined intimacy, and they practice that. And then great things, really, really, these first six stages are are, are more difficult than the next three because seventh stage is creative partnership. And what often happens is uh, couples who work this out, maybe they're 10 years in now or 15 years in or 20. I mean, it could happen anywhere. Mm -hmm. They become Mm -hmm. very creative. They've worked through. They don't have this constant stress with each other. And... Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes they worked it out relatively early, and now and they have their next child, their next child. That's the creativity. Often their creativity is work, or they start a new business, or they, um, or they give back. If it's happening later, like at 20 years in, they start giving back, and people they start mentoring other couples. So they have a mm-hmm. creative partnership, and um, uh, and it doesn't mean they're working together every moment of the day. It means that this partnership is creative, and other people kind of flock around to it, like other. Like other kids like to come over to their house, you know, to to hang out. Like it's a place that's safe, and 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 they're mentoring other young people in creativity. If it's their kids' friends, mm-hmm. or if their kids are grown, you know, they've started a not-for-profit now, or or et cetera. In other words, anything 
that where you see that the, the stability of the partnership allows for greater creativity in each of the individuals as well as in their partnership. Mm-hmm. So they, they really um, have learned how to balance. They have. In, and in a sense, they've learned how to love. And, you know, mm-hmm. one of the big goals, and now remember we're in stage seven, and the first stage is the the first seven stages of relationship mirror, and we haven't talked about this yet, but they mirror the, the seven stages between birth and adulthood. So now what they are is they're, they're complete adults with each other. Oh and if you want gosh. me to, I can kind of talk about the, the stages of attachment. Does that make yes, sense? Um, I, I just have one question in reflection over everything that we've talked about. Sure. Couples that do everything together and really don't have a lot of that separateness, those relationships will have a more difficult time of, of lasting, correct? Or not correct, or yes, no? Well, well it depend depend on the stage and, and, you know, other things going on in their life. But if if their closeness, if their attempts to do everything together are causing mm-hmm. stress, then that's okay. definitely dangerous for the relationship. And it will be subtle because okay. they've been told by their culture that you should always be really close, right? Everything's about mm-hmm. intimacy in our culture. But mm-hmm. in fact, that's only half correct. Um, too much intimacy destroys us. So, so if, but, but there gotcha. are couples that go through a stage, like the couple, okay, so the folks who have a golden divorce, they, you know, and then they remarry. And they're now 55 Mm -hmm. or 60, let's say. I'm just picking that age. They remarry. And they might spend like two years doing absolutely everything together, you know, Mm -hmm. because they've found each other. Mm -hmm. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, that's, you know, that's working. That's not causing stress in their relationship. So it really does depend on where they are in their lives and, and whether that constant closeness causes them stress or not. That's the key. That's the stress. key. If they're having if they're having a lot of fun, then that's a good thing. Yeah, these are apples okay. and oranges. I mean, the having fun is that you know they definitely want that. The closeness that's that's bad is 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 the closeness that creates the enmeshment abandonment that creates these undercurrents in which one person keeps having to pull away to have a safe self. That's what's causing difficulty. Um, it's not about mm-hmm. having fun or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, having fun, everyone should have that. That's great. This is mm-hmm. the psychological condition of being enmeshed. That's the closeness okay. that's dangerous. Pulling away to have a safe self. Gotcha. Okay. Um, we have, like, only a few minutes left. So pick pick what you want to um, talk to our listeners about that... Um, Will be a really great secret to know. <laughs> okay, well, let's see. Well, I, I think maybe what I'll talk about is this this kind of this secret that I think most therapists know, but that sometimes it's it's so sort of rich and and multi layered that sometimes you know lay people or clients don't don't realize it. And that and that secret mm-hmm. is that we do recreate. I can I mean I can tell people if they get the book to look at the in that yes. chapter on the stages, to look at those seven, the seven stages of attachment, of parent-child attachment, uh-huh. and then match those to the seven stages of relationship, and and really mine that for gold. Because if so often there are so many layers of ways in which we play out our our attachment when we were kids and and adolescents and young adults, you know, from about birth to thirty, basically, or birth to mm-hmm. twenty-five. There are so many ways in which those we we go through if we fully separate from our parents and become full adults, we go through seven stages to do that, okay? okay. Uh, the seven okay. stages where we do that, where we separate. So, but a lot of people are still sort of in stage 3 or 4 with their parents and they marry. Mm-hmm. And and that's one that's that leads to a lot of enmeshment because we basically project our parent or parents onto our spouse. And it, you know, it gets made fun of. Oh, that's so Freudian, and you know, the culture kind of makes fun of it and doesn't understand it and mm-hmm. doesn't realize mm-hmm. that there's that there's so much brain science behind this that we should really take this seriously. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because a lot of our power struggle is that we're still locked in some early stages here and we can't get out of them. And so we're always oh rebelling gosh. against our partner as if our partner is our mom or our dad. You know, we're rebelling. Or we're mm-hmm. trying to manipulate our partner as if our partner is mom or dad, um, uh, et cetera. So I think that's a really big secret. And if people have any curiosity about that, uh, it's you know obviously hard to explain in a few minutes. So that's, that's why this book will lead them into the underlayers of that. Oh, my gosh. It, it really is cutting edge what what you have accomplished with this book please tell our readers where they can purchase it and if you have a website that they can visit and tell them about your clinic okay yeah absolutely the website is michaelgurian.com so um, M-I-C-H-A-E-L G-U-R-I-A-N there you go (laughs) yeah G-U-R-I-A-N so michaelgurian.com uh, they can also just punch in the book, Lessons of Lifelong Intimacy. And right there, if they come to my site, they'll see the book, and then it le- leads mm-hmm. them to a page. And, of course, if they just want to go right away, they can go to Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com or anything like that and get it. Um, and okay. it, it, you know, and then they'll, and then on my, I, my site, they'll also see more about what I do. Well, Michael Girion, you have been an absolute pleasure to have had on our show. I can't thank you enough for taking out time in your busy busy schedule and oh, thank uh, you. we hope we hope to have you back in the future i'd love to come thanks so much for your wonderful show thank you again take care all right take care bye bye-bye all right listeners that pretty much wraps up our show for today please tune in again next wednesday we'll have another wonderful guest for you another learning adventure (laughs) so until then bye-bye for now we celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on twitter at health media now and facebook at health media now For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?